Heavenly Father, we do commit this time to you. Lord, we thank you that we have a gracious king in the person of Jesus. Lord, he is the risen and exalted one. And Heavenly Father, we know that we live in a world and we live in a culture where it's difficult for us to grasp the concept of a sovereign king. A king who deserves our love and our loyalty, our allegiance and our honor. And I pray this morning, Lord, that we could begin to see Jesus as the rightful king. Not just the king of the Jews and not just the king of the Gentiles, but our king. We commit this time to you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to continue our study in the Gospel of John, beginning in John chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 19. It says, The next day a great multitude that had come up to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt, His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Therefore, the people who were with him when he had called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. My friend Ravi Zacharias recently said, The traditionalist lives in the past. The existentialist lives in the present. The utopian dreamer lives in the future. And in this section, the past and the present and the future collide in a dramatic and prophetic moment. For centuries, traditionalists had anticipated the coming Messiah. As a matter of fact, in one of the clearest prophecies, the prophet Daniel wrote, 70 weeks or 70 groups of sevens are determined for your people, the Jewish people, and your holy city, that is Jerusalem. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Mashiach Nagib, or Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks, or seven groups of seven, and sixty-two weeks, or sixty-two groups of seven, the street will be built again, and the wall, even in troublesome times. The command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem is recorded in the book of Nehemiah, in chapter 2, in the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes. And we know, and can date that with a great deal of certainty, 
on the calendar, it would fall under March 14th, 445 B.C. In the same chapter, Daniel writes, And after 62 weeks, or 62 groups of seven, the Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. Every Jew familiar with Messianic prophecy would have circled that date in the prophetic calendar. One of the advantages of being old like me is sometimes God in His grace and His mercy gives you grandchildren. And one of the fun things that grandchildren love to do in December is when you have the December calendar, you can move it from December 1 to December 2, on through December 12th to December 17th to December 24th. And you know what's going to happen the next day. All heaven is going to break loose. All joy is going to descend on the household. And for the Jewish person who had marked this calendar laid out by Daniel, the prophecy was divided into three periods. A week of sevens, or seven times seven, or 49 years, would end a particular period of Jewish history. Then there would be a second period, what the Jewish people called the years of silence. 62 times 7, which took the Jews through the time of Jesus. And according to Sir Robert Anderson, this period ended on this very day that we're studying. Five days before the execution of Jesus. Bible scholars call this the triumphal entry. Jesus has five days left to live. And one period of seven remains unaccounted for. Sir Robert Anderson calculated 483 years times 360 days in the Jewish solar calendar and came up with 173,880 days. And starting with March 14th, 445 B.C., they would lay out the days. Day 1, day 100, day 1,000, day 10,000. Day 100,000, day 150,000, day 170,000, day 173,880 days brought you to April 6, 32 A.D. With Jesus leaving Bethany and getting on a donkey and riding towards the gates of Jerusalem. In a very real sense, that day would mark an important historical day, not just for the Jew, but for the Gentile. Because this is the day that Messiah, Nagib, Jesus, the Prince, comes, and the final days of Jesus are being counted down. Remember in verses 1 through 11, Jesus has six days to live. Remember at the beginning of the chapter, then six days before the Passover. Verse 12, the next day, Five days left to Passover. Observant Jews, by the way, were required to attend three compulsory feasts or festivals. They were the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Tabernacles. And to this day, observant Jews living in Buenos Aires or living in Panama or living in Mexico City or living in Australia or living in Shanghai, or living in India, they always say, next year in Jerusalem. And so the crowds have gathered. Look in verse 12. 
The next day, a great multitude had come to the feast, that is the feast of Passover, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. The Jews had gathered for this particular festival, and you'll note John refers to a great multitude. The historian Josephus, who lived in the first century A.D., estimated before the collapse of the Jewish temple, estimated some two million people would go into the city of Jerusalem and it would begin to swell. Imagine a quarter of a million lambs would be sacrificed. According to Josephus, at least in the year that he was making reference to, 256,500 lambs were slain at Passover. For the observant Jew... One lamb was assigned for ten people. And so if you have ten people and one lamb, 256,500 lambs would, would represent at well over two million people. Jerusalem was on that day like the Friday after Christmas at Target. Where you have 400 parking spaces and 1,200 people trying to find one, one of those spaces. It was wall-to-wall pilgrims lining the pathway that would have led from Bethany all the way to the Temple Mount. And in verse 13, it says they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him and they cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus is met by a significant crowd of people. By the way, in the culture and the society of the Jew, the palm branches were symbols of triumph and victory. Jesus certainly comes and he will triumph over sin and he will have the final victory over Satan. And the forces of darkness. But when the Jews rededicated their simple, their temple during the time of the Maccabees, this is in 164 BC, they, in the feast of the rededication, or the time that they call Hanukkah, they would bring out palms and they waved palm branches. And when the Jewish people finally gained their full independence under Shimon or Simon in 141 BC, They came and they lined the streets and they waved palm branches. Later in the war against the Romans, there would be two revolts. And they would take palm branches and they would stamp them on their coins as a type and a a picture of a symbol, if you will, of independence and peace. Many in Israel believed the Messiah would come. And that he would liberate them from the oppression and the bondage of the Roman subjugation. Since the time of Babylon and the Assyrians and the Macedonians, they lived under constant pressure, constant rule, constant subjugation with only a brief and momentary point of independence. And when the people cried, Hosanna, it was a strongly messianic claim. Hosanna means Save now or save, I pray. It was from the Hallel, the Psalms, 118 to 25 through 26. The observant Jews, they would line the streets as they would march to the temple. And Hosanna, again, is strongly associated with messianic expectations. The Messiah is coming. As a matter of fact, in certain cultures and societies, particularly Britain, when the queen comes out, the people shout, God save the queen. 
the idea being you save the queen for her majestic role and function. And that's exactly what the Jewish people are, are saying. They're saying, save now or, or save, I pray. By the way, the word Hosanna appears in the book of Matthew and the book of Mark. But Luke doesn't include the reference. And certainly the messianic expectation, at least in the mind of the Jew, is realized. Those phrases... Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel brings with it that expectation that Jesus is going to deliver. By the way, when most people pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, they have this utopic vision of a life in an ideal society. Tragically, the Jewish people never really grasp the fact that the millennial kingdom could only be manifest on the foundation of a spiritual kingdom. The Jews longed for an earthly savior. And the messianic expectation included a leader who would deal with the problems, not just facing the Jews, but facing humanity, political stability, economic prosperity, food security, philosophical justice. The Jews longed for a messianic conquistador, a savior who would subjugate their enemies, who would eliminate evil men, who would keep and embrace God's revelation as it's found in the Torah and revealed in the prophets. Hunger, disease, famine, poverty, social justice. There would be no need for the departments of health and human services, no department of justice, no food and drug agency, no department of housing. Messiah brings with them food, housing, health, tranquility, success. He brings all things, all good things. And this is the problem. Because that's the kind of leader that the world really wants. You see... The world isn't really interested in a Messiah who will deal with the big problem of the heart. With the difficulty and the darkness, with the distance that lies inside of the person who's estranged from God and estranged from each other. The world wants a leader who will give them food, clothing, shelter. They want a leader who will provide everything, but who will not make extraordinary demands. A leader who will make people sufficiently religious so that they don't hurt each other. When I was in Israel not too long ago, they love Christians coming, praying that the Muslims around them will convert to Christianity, but you'll note that they never ask them to convert, convert to Judaism. Look, if, you, if they could all become Christians like you, then all of our problems would be solved. Is that true? No. People want people to be just religious enough so that they can continue in harmless pleasures. A leader who will accept them. A leader who will not judge them. A leader who will allow them to continue in sin no matter how unjust or immoral his or her behavior is. So where do the false messianic concepts lead? The false messiah leads to a Christ who never reveals his true mission. You see, Jesus comes not to establish a visible kingdom, but an invisible kingdom. Not to establish thrones and palaces, 
but an invisible throne and an internal palace inside of the human heart. Christ comes in order to liberate people from their sin and reconcile them to God. And that Christ is concerned about your friendship and your fellowship with God. That Christ is the one who is completely committed to the idea that you cannot live your life apart from God. But you will continue to live your life apart from God. Estranged from God. Distant from God. So long as you allow your sin to remain. Jesus reveals a God who is holy and righteous and pure. But God demands perfection. And we understand. And we say, no one's perfect. Everyone's human. So we redefine perfection to fit our failure. And our failure constantly reminds us that we're still estranged from God. Because the perfection that God is looking for is the perfection in a life lived perfectly. And there's only one person who qualifies. And that is his Messiah. Christ the King. To see Jesus as an earthly Savior. To see Jesus as a political Savior. To see Jesus as the person who comes to eliminate your poverty, eradicate prejudice, and ensure social justice. is to see Jesus as a global provider, a champion, if you will. To see Jesus as the person who's going to do away with global warming, feed the hungry, house the homeless, give to the poor. It's to see Jesus as the indulgent Savior who accepts you no matter who you are, no matter what you do. Just so long as he can make you a little bit religious. To see Jesus apart from his most deep concern. Well, I see Jesus as a good man. Good for you. I see Jesus as a generous person. Good for you. I see Jesus as a person who came and was completely misunderstood and was killed by people who didn't know any better. Good for you. But the truth is, Jesus comes not in order to just simply teach the most important teaching that has ever been taught. Not just to live the most important life that's ever been lived. But he comes literally to die. The kingdom of Jesus is not a palace or a throne on the outside world, but a throne and a palace that's lived inside of the human heart. Do you see Jesus as the one who provides for you? Wealth, prosperity, the good things of the earth. Do you think Jesus sits in heaven and hopes to give you a dream house, a dream car, a dream job? Do you think that Jesus is up in heaven just wondering on how to make all your dreams come true? The truth is, there's one dream. It's a singular dream. And the singular dream is your life forgiven. Your life reconciled to the Father. Your life lived in such a way that you're no longer in bondage, no longer in slavery, because the world makes it abundantly clear all the world serves someone. Even you. Even you. Make no mistake about it. 
every morning of every day, you live for someone or something. And Jesus' primary concern is for your spiritual freedom. And so look at verse 14. It says, Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written in verse 15, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. This is only one of many prophecies. I've already read to you Daniel chapter 9. Here, the writer quotes Zechariah, the prophet, in chapter 9, verse 9. Jesus comes not as a warrior king on a white horse with armies in judgment, but as the prophecy intimates, the Messiah who is riding on a lowly beast. Zechariah's prophecy actually says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Behold, your king comes to you. He is just and has salvation. Every emperor and every king who had ever lived up until that time had made a promise of justice and fulfilled it to a greater or lesser extent. Kings promised salvation. I will make you free from your enemies. I will make you free from the people on the outside. I will make you free so that you can live in your land and, and, and cultivate your crops and eat. Of, you can breathe the king's air. You can eat the king's food. You can live in the king's land. But all did it with imperfection. And no king, I repeat, no king brought salvation. The prophet says he's lowly, that means humble, riding on a donkey, on the colt, the foal of a colt. The prophet's picture is a picture of peace. Jesus knew that the people were looking for an earthly king. And as Jesus rode and the crowds cheered and the palm branches were laid down, Roman soldiers would have been mocking and laughing all along the way. Can you imagine a Jewish rabbi riding on a donkey? Is that much of a threat? Do you think the, the powers that be in, the, in Rome shuddered going, ooh, we're afraid. Little did they know that within four centuries, Rome would be on the brink of collapse and Jesus the King, Jesus the Messiah would have spread from Britain to India to Africa to Asia it's very hard for us to picture what's happening. G.K. Chesterton wrote about the donkey. When fishes flew and forests walked and figs grew upon thorn, some moment when the moon was blood, then surely I was born, with monstrous head and sickening cry and ears like errant wings. The devil's walking parody on all four-footed things. The tattered outlaw of the earth of ancient crooked will. Starve, scourge, deride me. I am dumb. I keep my secrets still. Fools. For I also had my hour. One far fierce hour and sweet. There was a shout about my ears and palms before my feet. Yeah, the donkey had his day in the sun. It was an American idol. It was the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem. You have to understand, in ancient days, a colt was a noble animal. It was used as a beast of burden to carry the burdens of men. 
It was also used by kings and ambassadors. And you have to understand something in the ancient world, in the Asian world, when a king or an ambassador rode into town on a donkey, it always meant peaceful intentions. But imagine a man comes on a on a snorting stallion with an army behind him. What do you suppose the people thought? What are your intentions? Why are you here and what do you want? The fact that Jesus agrees to ride on the cult means that he's willing to fulfill the prophecy, but it's more than that. He's more than fulfilling the prophecy. He is the promised king. He is the savior. Yet Jesus is not the conquering king in the sense that he will subdue nations, restore physical, social, and political order to the governments of men. And to this day, to this day, when I ask Jewish rabbis, what is it about Jesus as he fulfills the prophecies and he makes good on the prophecies written by the, by the prophets so long ago, what is it about Jesus that you reject him? And you know what so many rabbis say? Because he failed to meet all the messianic criteria. The Messiah was going to come and liberate the Jew and place both Judah and Jerusalem is the focal point of all human history. The government will be on his shoulders. That's what the prophet Isaiah said. And the prophet was right. The government will be on his shoulders. But not now. Not yet. The intention of Jesus, the mission of Jesus is to come not to take his rightful throne as the heir of David's legacy, but he comes as the humble king, the burden bearing king, the holy king, the king who is willing to die in order to reconcile fallen human beings to their estranged creator. The values of the kingdom run counter to our expectation. The reason why the values of the kingdom run counter to our expectation is because our expectation isn't God's expectation. You know what God wants from you more than anything? Your love. Your loyalty. Your trust. Your friendship. Your fellowship. The cult was a symbol of peace. And Jesus comes and he brings peace. Not just simply peace of God, but peace with God. Because there's a war. There's a reoccurring conflict that constantly takes place in the human heart as they desperately want to have a right relationship with God, but they're not willing to deal with the issue of sin. The cult is also a symbol of service, bearing burdens. And Jesus is the king. But he's the king who will come and bear your burden. He will satisfy your circumstance. Jesus is the king who bears the greatest burden of all. And that's the burden of your sin. That's the burden of the estrangement that you have with God. Jesus comes to bear our burdens. But the cult is not simply a symbol of peace and a symbol that bears the burden. The cult is also the symbol of sacredness or sanctity. It's a hard concept for most people to get. But remember, this is a cult 
that has never been ridden. I don't know about you, but if you've ever tried to get on a donkey that's never been broken, chances are you're going to be broken. It's a miracle that he's able to even get on the donkey. But there's something else. There's something else. There's a reason why the cult has never been ridden. It has a sacred meaning. Meaning, it means that this is a sacred function, a sacred occasion. Some of you have things that have a very special function. And you may use it maybe only once a year. You have a special plate that's used at Christmas time or New Year. You have a special dish. You have a a special dress. You have special earrings or jewelry. You have something that you set apart that is only used for the most appropriate of occasions. And that's what this donkey is. He's set apart. This donkey exists for one reason and one reason only. To be ridden that day in fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, in fulfillment of Daniel chapter 9, the 173,880 days had been marked off the calendar. The king has come, but the kingdom of Jesus will not be like the kingdom of Augustus or Tiberius. Or Artabanus II, who is the king of Parthia, even while Jesus is riding in. And while Jesus is riding in, just a few years earlier, Artabanus had killed 30 of his relatives in order to consolidate his empire so no one can challenge him. He was the kind of king who kills people so that he can remain king. But Jesus is the kind of king who will bear your burden, who will bring you peace, and who himself will die so that you don't have to. Citizenship in the kingdom of God is the most valuable possession that you could possibly have. And you've got to understand something. If you lived in the world of Rome, it was a great honor and it was a great privilege to be a citizen of Rome. And if you weren't born a Roman citizen, it could only be purchased at great cost. And with the citizenship of Rome came great privilege. And with citizenship in heaven comes great privilege. Eternal life. By the way, there's only one way to get citizenship in heaven. It can only be be given by God through Jesus Christ. But the Bible in the New Testament seems to indicate that it's worth giving up everything to obtain it. And look in verse 16, it says, His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, that means after he had already died and rose from the dead, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. In other words, the prophecies in Daniel, the prophecies in Zechariah were about Jesus. John concedes his disciples did not understand these things at first. 
It was only after the death and resurrection did they begin to fully understand the consequences of the events that they had just witnessed. I need you to understand this. The disciples themselves misunderstood the mission of Jesus and his claims as Christ. The disciples themselves believed Jesus to be an earthly Messiah, a king who would rule and reign on David's throne. And it was because of, in part because of that misunderstanding, that Judas, because his expectations were dashed, because Jesus didn't prove to be the Messiah that he wanted him to be, went out and killed himself. You'll remember earlier in the New Testament, James and John, their mother, come to Jesus and they say, when you come into your kingdom, I want my sons, one on the right hand and one on the left hand. And do you remember Jesus' response? You have zero idea what you're talking about, woman. What do you mean, Jesus? Hey, are your sons willing to do what I'm going to have to do in order to occupy that throne? Of course! Before Jesus will sit on a physical throne... He'll have to hang on a Roman cross. Before a crown, an eternal crown is pressed on his brow, a crown of thorns will have to be pressed on his head. They don't get it. The common people misunderstood their own prophecies. The disciples misunderstood their own prophecies. The religious leaders misunderstood their own prophecies. Because you see, the task of revealing the truth to the heart was a task that was going to be left to the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, a few chapters from now, in John chapter 14, verse 26, the writer will say, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, when whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all everything or all things that I have said to you. And I want to draw your attention to that expression. Then they remembered, or then they remembered that these things were written of Him and that they had done these things to Him. What things? Killed Him. The type, the shadow, the offering, the prophecy, the Scriptures are about God's Messiah, His Redeemer, God's hope, God's will, God's revelation. The scripture are God's words recorded and preserved. And they contain the truth about God and God's Messiah. And the Holy Spirit takes the believer's mind and heart and helps him or her to grasp the truth. The person who's willing to study the scripture, to grasp the scripture, the person who seeks God's word, the spirit of God, will unfold the word of God to the child of God. That's the promise. And so when John writes that, he says, guess what? After Jesus had risen from the dead, we were able to say, I get it. Do you search the scriptures? Do you actually search the scriptures for truth? You see, the reality is you may have had a superficial reading. Before I became a Christian, I had read the Bible. I read the Old Testament stories. I read the New Testament stories. But I never read them as a person who believed that those stories could possibly be true. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul writes, These things we also speak, not in words 
which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual things, the rabbi Paul contrasts man's wisdom and God's wisdom. And there's the rub. Well, I believe what I believe. Of course you believe what you believe. But what if what you believe is different from what the Bible says? In God's wisdom, He's given us a revelation. Not just a revelation, but a resurrected Jesus and an abiding Holy Spirit and God's Word. What was different? They said, hey, look, we had this as our excuse. We had no idea what we were doing. But the Bible says we are without excuse. Jesus has risen and is glorified. How long will people continue to misunderstand the mission of Jesus? Jesus didn't come to the world to fill your grocery list. He didn't come to fulfill your lusts and ambitions. Jesus didn't come to the world to put his stamp of approval on a political party or a philosophical system or to bring about a utopia for men apart from God. But that's what people want. They want utopia without God, without the plan of God, without the purpose of God, without the sacrifice of God. Jesus comes to bring peace with God and the peace of God by providing forgiveness of sin and with the ability for you to live a life of selfless sacrifice in order to further God's agenda. Does this mean that we ignore the plight of the poor? Does this mean that we neglect the moral, the philosophical, the cultural, the economic the physical, the technological problems of humanity? I don't think so. But we refuse to misrepresent the kingdom of men by calling it the kingdom of God. And God has given you a conscience. And God has given you a mind. And God has given you the ability to love Him and to serve Him. And that love and that service is best expressed in selflessness. Do you remember what Jesus said about the poor? He said, the poor you will have with you. Was he right? Does poverty still exist? I first entered the profession of social services hoping for job security. Well, the Bible says the poor you'll have with you always. Hey, rain or shine, I'll always have something to do. Guess what? The poor do not exist simply so that I can have a job. Have you ever stopped to consider that there's a reason why the poor you'll have with you always? It's because the selfish will also be with us always. We live in a world that that the biggest problem probably isn't poverty, but it's probably greed and selfishness. And so there are people who have needs. And there are people who are able to meet that need. And every moment of every day, every smile that you smile, and every gift that you give, and every treasure that you bestow, you become a little 
less selfish and a little more selfless. But the message, the message of hope was this. Repent, all of you, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's what it said in Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. Repent, all of you, be converted that your sin may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come in the presence of the Lord. That's what it said in Acts chapter 3, verse 19. In Acts chapter 8, verse 22, repent, therefore, of this your wickedness and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. It's in the context of Ananias and Sapphira who dreamed a dream that they could live a life misrepresenting God. Can the Holy Scriptures be understood apart from the Holy Spirit? I don't think so. We come to rely on the Holy Spirit to give us understanding. And so we learn. And that's why I encourage you. It's not good enough. And I'm glad, I'm glad, even listening with my frog throat, I'm glad you come to church on Sunday. But it's my deepest prayer that on Monday you will wake up and you will open up your Bible and you will read it. And on Tuesday you will open up your Bible and you will read it. And on Wednesday you will open up your Bible and you will read it. And on Thursday you will open up your your Bible and you'll ask yourself this question, Lord, what is it that you want to show me today from your word? And in verse 17, the crowds react, therefore, the people who were with him, that is, with Jesus, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb, that is, the witnesses in chapter 11 who witnessed when Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, and he broke the boundary, if you will, of death and came back to life. Those people were there, and some of them gave witness or testimony to the reality of Jesus. Now, I want you to think for just a moment. For those people who witnessed the miracle, a miracle of a Savior who defeats death, a miracle of a Savior who turns water into wine, a miracle of a Savior who walks on the water, the miracle of a Savior who feeds 5,000, the miracle of a Savior who brings dead people back to life. Their witness is this. If Jesus can do those things, the Romans don't stand a chance. And that's the misplaced motive. Because is Jesus there to liberate them from Rome? Even miraculously liberate them from Rome? No. It's to liberate them from a king and a sovereign who is far more wicked and far more sinister and far more evil And far more intrusive, it's the wickedness of the sovereignty of Satan in the heart of the unbeliever who lives his or her life under the crushing pressure of sin. You'll remember that it says many believed on Jesus in verse 45, but they don't get it either. Many of the crowd are home for the holidays. Some saw Jesus, but some were there, filled with pilgrims and sightseers. The people came from Babylon, from Alexandria to the south, Ekbatana, which was the capital of Media, from Rome. They came with energy and excitement to see the sensational and the spectacular, and they began to get caught up in the spirit of the moment. Hosanna. Save. 
we want you to be king. But even then, it's a king on their own terms to meet their own needs. And look in verse 19. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is not a good thing. Would to God it was a good thing. Can you imagine if the whole world did go after him? But when the Pharisees are saying that, they're not saying it with belief. They're saying it in despair and rage. The religious leaders see the crowds like a wave of sheep or cattle filling the road, congesting the path, welcoming Jesus as the Messiah. Some of the religious leaders came to realize their impotence in the face of the inevitable. They were far from convinced. They were powerfully moved. They were visibly disturbed. They gave utterance to their pathetic confession of failure. We can't stop him. People keep believing in Jesus. No matter what we do, they keep believing in Jesus. Isn't that great? Because the atheist and the agnostic and the skeptic and the unbeliever no matter how persuasive their arguments, no matter how wicked their unbelief, husbands get saved and wives get saved and children get saved and people come to a place where they actually believe the truth about Christ. And when they utter, behold, the world has gone after him, they think it's because they're stupid. Just like some of you. You at least have the temerity not to say it to your husband's face or your wife's face or your children's face. Every moment in times of fear and frustration, you think that your mother, your father, your brother, your sister is an idiot for believing the claims about Christ. Because you would dare believe in a king who would bear your burdens, who would forgive your sins, and who would bring you peace. The kingdom of God is not a visible kingdom. It's not an earthly kingdom. And the kingdom of God is a reality right now, and the values of the kingdom often run counter to our expectations. The kingdom grows even among its enemies. And the kingdom will ultimately be revealed in its fullness. And citizenship in that kingdom is our most valuable possession. But there's only one way to become a citizen in that kingdom. And the citizenship has to be granted by the lordship of Jesus. What does it mean to be a Member of the kingdom of God, it means that you make Jesus king and lord of your life. And that he controls every area of your life, your work, your recreation, your plan, your relationship. Your world is his palace. Your heart is his throne. But it's a concept that's so foreign to most of us, it's almost unfathomable. Earlier this week, I had 
dinner with several families in our church. And I had the privilege of speaking to a woman in our church who grew up in a place where they have a king. And in this country, they love their king. And in this country, they honor their king. And in this country, they not only respect the king, but they respect everyone in the king's family. And she was telling me that as a young girl, she went to a school. And one of the king's family was the principal or the coordinator of the school. And she told me that as a little girl, when she would approach the principal, she would get down on her hands and her knees and she would crawl towards the, the principal. And that when it came time to leave, that she would get on her hands and her knees and she would respectfully retreat until she was out of the sight of the person who was within her gaze. People in the world treat ruling authorities with more respect than Christians treat their king. Because you see, in a world, if you grow up in a world where the king is the king, you breathe the king's air, you eat the king's food, you drink the king's water, you live on the king's land. Your very existence is dependent upon the generosity of the king. And you never know how much you want air until you don't have it anymore. When your lungs fill with fluid and you're no longer able to breathe. You never know what it's like to eat until you are without food. Or to drink without water. Or to be homeless without a home. But in the end, it is your king who provides everything for you. And he has given you the most important thing. He's given you peace with God. He's relieved you of your burden. And he's set you aside for a holy task. To love him. To honor him. The king has come. But make no mistake about it. The king is coming. This time, not on a donkey, but on a horse from heaven. And when he comes, it will be with armies. And when he comes, he will execute his enemies. And when he comes, he will reward his friends. And when he comes, he will consolidate his kingdom. That's what Christians mean every time they say the word Maranatha. The Lord, the King, is coming. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that sometimes in deep disrespect, we fail to honor God as King. And Lord, we fearlessly, absent-mindedly mock, ridicule, persecute the king's family. But Lord, we thank you for our citizenship. That just as Paul said, our home is in heaven. And we are seated in heavenly places 
with Christ as King. And Lord, we long, we long, we long for the day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Messiah to the glory of God the Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's